Welcome to Why Is This Good, a podcast by the Naples Writers Workshop. I'm Christine, and I'm here with John. Hey, John. Hello. All right, it's my turn. And in keeping with my recent theme of choosing short stories that have or will be turned into films, I have chosen, I think, our third George Saunders story, which at this point, I don't even care. Anyway, this one's called Escape from Spiderhead, and it is being turned into a film this year. Imagine the worst you have ever felt times 10. That does not even come close to how bad you feel on darkened flocks. The time it was administered to us in orientation, briefly, for demo purposes, at one-third the dose, now selected on Amnesty's remote, I have never felt so terrible. All of us were just moaning, heads down, like, how could we ever have felt life was worth living? I do not even like to think about that time. What's your decision, Jeff? Amnesty said. Is Rachel getting the darkened flocks or Heather? I can't say, I said. You have to, he said. I can't, I said. It would be like random. You feel your decision would be random, he said. Yes, I said. And that was true. I really didn't care. It was as if I put you in the spider head and gave you the choice. Which of these two strangers would you like to send into the shadow of the valley of death? 10 seconds, Amnesty said. What we're testing for here is any residual fondness. It wasn't that I liked them both. I honestly felt completely neutral toward both. It was exactly as if I had never seen them, much less fucked either one. They had really succeeded in taking me back to baseline, I guess I am saying. But having once been dark and floxed, I just didn't want to do that to anyone. Even if I didn't like the person very much, even if I hated the person, I still wouldn't want to do it. Five seconds, Amnesty said. I can't decide, I said. It's random. Truly random, he said. Okay, I'm giving the darkened flocks to Heather. I just sat there. No, actually, he said. I'm giving it to Rachel. Just sat there. Jeff, he said. You have convinced me. It would, to you, be random. You truly have no preference. I can see that. And therefore, I don't have to do it. See what we just did with your help for the first time via the ED-289-290 suite, which is what we've been testing today. You have to admit it. You were in love. Twice, right? Yes, I said. Very much in love, he said, twice. I said, yes, I said. But you just now express no preference, he said. Ergo, no trace of either of those great love remains. You are totally cleansed. We brought you high, laid you low, and now here you sit, the same emotion-wise as before our testing even began. That is powerful. That is killer. We have unlocked a mysterious, eternal secret. What a fantastic game changer. Say someone can't love. Now he or she can. We can make him. Say someone loves too much, or loves someone deemed unsuitable by his or her caregiver. We can tone that shit right down. Say someone is blue because of true love. We step in where his or her caregiver does, blue no more. No longer, in terms of emotional controllability, are we ships adrift. No one is. We see a ship adrift, we climb aboard, install a rudder, guide him or her toward love, or away from it. You say all you need is love? Look, here comes ED-289-290. Can we stop war? We sure as heck can slow it down. Suddenly, the soldiers on both sides start fucking, or at low dosage, feel super fun. Or say we have two rival dictators in a death grudge, assuming ED-289-290 develops nicely in pill form, allow me to slip each dictator a mickey. Soon their tongues are down each other's throats and doves of peace are pooping on their epaulets. Or, depending on the dosage, they may just be hugging. And who helped us do that? You did. All this time, Rachel and Heather had just been sitting there in large workroom one. So that's the section that I think obviously summarizes what it is they're doing in this short story, which is testing all these people to see if they have this love drug. <laughs> that last section, I made a note on this margin. I wrote pitch. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I wanted to make sure I read that section because until that point, you don't really know what the point of um, the experiments are, you know, like, why would they be doing this? Anyway, I came across the story, like I said, because I've been exclusively looking for stories that are going to be films. And even though it was a Saunders one, I kept reading it. 
it. And then I was like, you know, I don't even care. Like, it's so good already. What I learned after reading this piece is like, I think what's great about George Saunders is like his voice is apparent in almost every story. Aside from that first one, which I would reread now. Oh, it's not his voice. It's a character voice. These are character voices. Okay. And I knew you were going to say that too. I don't care if it's a character voice. I know that this is George Saunders. Like when I read certain lines and the way that they swear and the way like there's their, uh, they, it sounds like true dialogue. It sounds like real people talking the same way that I recognize the Stephen King story because it's like a band of boys. The, the reason I, I'm confident in saying this is his character voice yeah. is because in that first George Saunders piece that we did, the two voices, the ballerina, the girl and the boy were so distinct that I know he's capable of making distinct voices. I know he's capable of making distinct voices, but this is, this is like, you could show this to me blindly, blindly. And I would say, this is fucking George Saunders. Well, the, the way, other, the second one, the way his did. characters talk, man, even, it, it, even if it's just like, he has a penchant for the same types of characters, whatever it is. Like that's a different man. Yeah, that could be, that could definitely be, but that'd be different than, than pure voice. I think, I guess my point is you could come up with a character that has this voice and you couldn't execute it the way George Saunders does repeatedly which is there's like uh how, how many george saunders stories have you read I, I just know this and that other one it's like this is him it's like it's him in two seconds flat i can't explain it he has like in this x factor thing where it's like this is fucking george saunders and i the, like the okay similarities i saw between this one and the, the second one we did the previous one is the like the dark and flocks that trademarked names like he did something similar in that other story as well it's as if he's working in like a, an alternate like a, a Saunders verse or something I noticed that right away as being a similarity between the two I'm sure if he showed me his entire body work I'd be like yeah there's certain ones that don't read like George Saunders but I mean in the same way that in our workshop after eight years of doing it you could show me one that you wrote and I recognize it as you like there, there's something intangible and you can try to write whoever you want you could try to write a wildly different character and I'll know it's you I guarantee it and I'm not saying that uh, I have some skill for picking it up and I'm not even saying that I can tell you what it is I recognize you know but there's certain people where it's like this is you through and through I am not well read I'll admit that a million times but reading this story within paragraphs I was like I'm gonna love this the way I love the last one and it's because the characters are so real the voice is so modern there's something like kind of like flippant and like detached about his characters like even if they're like like in this case very involved in what's happening like there's true consequences there's still like this remove that they experience like their attitude about the world is jaded somehow There, there's like the the aunt and that other one that was just jaded but there's something about being jaded that like offers this like tone and like levity to the story i think it might be helpful if you could point to some specific lines john i don't know what you're on tonight but <laughs> look vo- i don't think voices is, is as specific as you're you're claiming it to be at least the way you're describing it like jaded is isn't a, a thing that i can find on the page it's an overall effect, but a lot of people can do it. And a lot of people can make it happen in different ways. And it's the different ways that are the interesting thing. Sure. I don't know necessarily how he accomplishes it. I mean, one thing I noticed about the voice in here is like he used the word re, R-E, which is um, like I would never say that in, in speech. 
change, but the character is thinking it, you know, like uh, when he's being influenced by these drugs and he's facing the girl, he says, soon something began to change. I mean, she was fine, a handsome, pale girl, but nothing special. And I could see that she felt the same re me, i.e. what had all the fuss been about just now? Re is a is a shortening of regarding. So you put it in an email, yeah. like your your email right. reply is regarding whatever the previous subject was. And another place, he just inserts a French word. We began the process of trying to talk après verbalas, always awkward. And he has these moments where the character is narrating. It's the first person, so the character is is narrating this kind of in like a um, not as a speech act, right? It's not like um, goodbye and good luck, where you're overhearing the character tell somebody the story but it's right. just kind of like he's just telling it as if to us in some vague way but the way he talks the way he describes things changes when he's under the influences is verbulous yeah verbal loose i guess is how you say it like in the first section when he first gets it he added some verbal loose to the drip soon as he's feeling the same things but saying them better the garden still looked nice uh it was like the bushes were so tight seeming and the sun made everything stand out that question mark he uses that question mark to like yeah Almost like an uptalk thing. It was like the bushes were so tight seeming and the sun made everything stand out. It was like any moment you expected some Victorians to wander in with their cups of tea. It was as, as if the garden had become a sort of embodiment of the domestic dreams forever intrinsic to human consciousness. It was as if I could suddenly discern in this contemporary vignette, the ancient corollary through which Plato and some of his contemporaries might have strolled to wit. I was sensing the eternal and the ephemeral. That is a journey of voice. Like that is a journey of of how his mind is changing the way he's able to articulate what is happening right. within that paragraph. And it does that every time he gets that that drug that changes his yeah. his um, verbal acuity. The same kind of effect happens. It's not as like this is the introductory one, so I think this is the most pronounced. Um, but it it keeps happening, and I think he's also on the the verbal loose when he uses the French word après, and then um, he's not. Not on it when he uses re, which is interesting, but it's just like little things like that that I, I noticed throughout the kind of form this voice, the voice that I take as the character narrating this piece. And even the word like uh, in section five, it's my mind was like reeling. This is after he finds out that Rachel had also um, had the same sexual experience with Rogan, the second guy. And that like is he's not going to say that in that um, under verbal loose, but he does right. say it in that situation. I don't know. I thought that there was uh, a lot of specific things that you could point to as far as the things that create the voice in this. Yeah, here's one. My penis is sore, I said. Like, that is a Saunders line, man. Coming out of the character's mouth. <laughs> it's coming out of the character's mouth, sure, but there are characters that you cannot write because you're not them. Just like I cannot write characters because I'm not them. I would argue for days that even the best writers can only capture a radius outside of their own knowledge and ability. That's true. Yes. I'll and so this is, this is so tightly Saunders. I guarantee you if I met him in person, like he's not going to say penis, but he's going to sound like these characters. He's going to have this attitude like, th and that's a lot of, I think, why, especially in our workshop, I can read someone's stuff and know whose it is. Because depending on how good a writer you are and how 
smart a person you are, your radius is a lot tighter. You're going to be writing things that sound a lot like you. <laughs> I think the ideal for me, from my point of view, the ideal writer is one whose, whose radius, as you're describing it, is much larger. Yeah. I think it would be disappointing as a writer to be described as having a really tight radius like that. It would be. I don't know that George Saunders would appreciate that. <laughs> well, he can come talk to me if he wants, because the point is that I'm a huge fan. But to that point as well, I would also say that when you think of certain writers, their body of work is there's similarities throughout all of it. I mean, there's some writers that try and maybe successfully tackle tons of different things. It's like, yeah, you can, but there are things in here that are similar that are similar to you. Like just like Hemingway's shit all sounds the fucking same. There's writers that I think maybe have built careers on their ability to stretch themselves. But I would argue that when people are big fans of certain authors, it's because there's something similar throughout all of their works that brings you back to those authors, whether it's the characters or this overall approach that they have that is unique to them. And maybe voice is the wrong word, but it's what makes writers unique or else we would all be able to write what everyone writes. I think Saunders has a radius and there's a sweet spot for what that is. Too tight and you're not a good writer, but too broad and I guarantee you, you're unrecognizable. You're trying too much to do too many things that you cannot do well. I've seen this before though. This isn't like unique to him, this stuff, some of the stuff that he's doing. I'm not saying that what is that any of this stuff is unique to him. I'm saying that I read this and I'm like, this is, oh my God, I love this for the same reason I love this other shit. It's him doing the same thing he does really well, which is this voice, this attitude. And if I had to guess, I would guess it was him based on those two stories. It's just such such a strong correlation. And like I said, I'm terribly, horribly read. So go ahead and like put me to the test and I'll fail it. But I think I'm right about what I'm pointing out in terms of writers having tendencies and abilities that are recognizable. And that's what makes them good and unique. I'm not denying that authors sound like themselves from time to time. I just don't like George Saunders is so prolific. I don't think you can encapsulate everything he's done in, in this. And I haven't read more than these three stories by him but i doubt that this is all he does i would be i would be shocked if this is all he does we read three stories and one of which is much different than these two so i think it's evidence enough but he's got that quirky i mean you can be quirky in different kinds of ways about i don't know i just don't like to make that broad generalization and uh leave it unchallenged yeah well, what did you like about this story? Um, I enjoyed reading the story and I liked it. And it was uh, a fun read. Read it twice. I think it all works together really well. This story made me think a lot about purpose. You know, like when the character at the end decides to kill himself using the jailer's remote, who the jailer just happened to leave behind. Right. It made me wonder whether I was meant to understand that as being an accident or not. And what that says about how we read. Like, am I supposed to expect there to be more to the motives than is being portrayed? And should I look for more in their motives than is being portrayed? Or should I just take what's on the page literally and assume that there are no more motives that I need to discover in some alternate way besides reading what's on the page, you know, like guessing or analyzing. It's told in the first person from the point of view of the person who believes that he made his own choice at the end to kill himself and wasn't kind of tricked into it. Yeah. 
but I could see an alternate version of this where we come to realize at the end that he was tricked into it. Yeah, that's a good point. That had not occurred to me reading this, but I could absolutely, yeah, I could absolutely see where that's kind of the takeaway. And I was left like, I don't know what to do with that. It's just a difficult question. The idea that he might've been tricked, you didn't know what to do with her. I didn't know what to do with my conundrum of whether or not this piece wants me to make that leap or not. I don't know. I don't have an answer for that. I don't know what to do with my lack of answer. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, that's me. That's my problem, but. That was my reaction to it. Yeah. Like I said, I hadn't really considered that. What I liked about it, kind of the ending and like his decision, because he thinks it's a decision then at least. He's not really talking at that moment as if like this is part of the experiment. He's more just kind of like, I'm gonna, I'm definitely going to spare these other people and they're not going to be able to do it to these other people. So who knows? But I kind of like that that was his own conclusion, this idea that because, okay, overall the premise is that like these people are at this facility being tested because they all committed crimes so they're like some kind of prisoner and like this is an option for a sentence that someone gave them right we don't know if they yeah. chose it or not but this is like it's this or prison and this is obviously like this experiment that we're watching them do because it's probably the most fucked up where he has to decide if he's gonna like deliver the worst imaginable pain to someone that he was in love with earlier that day and he's not in love with them now because of these drugs but still like he views them as humans is what he says throughout so this is this felt like you know a commentary on like how we treat prisoners on some level if you want to like look at like the most relatable part of the story we don't do these kinds of experiments we don't have these kinds of drugs and capabilities but we do treat prisoners as like less than human and expendable in a lot of ways and there are attitudes about criminals treating other criminals that way you know they're like well which one do you want to give this drug to and he's like neither they're humans and they're like well does it make you feel (laughs) differently knowing that this human like killed an elderly person and stole a bunch of drug money and like you know all this shit and he's like uh I know it doesn't matter because I've been on darkened flocks and it's horrible. So like, there's also this truth about, you know, if you've been to the pits of hell, you know what it's like and it doesn't remove your humanity, you know? So I liked all of that commentary. At the same time, like all of that is kind of hovering here, but what the story is fundamentally is like this guy feeling guilty about the murder he committed, right? And trying to live up to that guilt. Yeah, you're right. It's, it's kind of hovering. It's not like when I read this, when I finished reading it, I was like, ah, I totally see how they're going to make this a film. The premise is ripe for film. Like, they're going to introduce, like, new bullshit experiments. Or they're going to bring the facility to life. They're going to add a cast of characters, all this kind of shit, like, because the concept is fun. Yeah. And then, like, you know, the fact that there's, like, you said this hovering theme of, like, guilt and all this, they can play with it, and that, like, justifies it being a movie. But, yeah, it's not, I don't know. I wasn't reading this thinking to myself, like, oh, he feels guilty. I was more just like, what's he going to do? What's he going to do? What's he going to do? That's not even like you don't see that until the end yeah which is a fascinating structure we talked about uh, the structure before of you start with the current dilemma then you jump to backstory and then you're back to that dilemma that's like a frame that we've seen a million times in this one we don't find out with the backstory like we don't find out his crime until the end it's like the very end it's the last section right before he decides that he's dead he wants to die yeah and you know one of the other things that confused me at the end of this was he killed himself and then the story keeps going. It says, uh, I was staggering around the spider head looking for something, anything. In the end, here's how bad it got. I used a corner of the desk, meaning he smashed his head into the corner of the desk and killed himself, right? This is how we're supposed to understand that. And the next paragraph, what's death like? You're briefly unlimited. 
I sailed right out through the roof. And then there's another page and a half of him being dead. And then you get this line uh, from somewhere, something kind asked, would you like to go back? It's completely up to you. Your body appears salvageable. No, I thought, no, thanks. I've had enough. So not only did he choose to kill himself, he also is depicted as, or he's also telling us the story of him choosing not to remain dead. He's like, no, I'm actually certain this is what I wanted. Yeah. This, this after having seen all these other people seeing kind of like, you know, he, there's that brief image of the mother of his victim. Yeah. Mike Apple's mom, also in Rochester, a bony distraught check mark occupying a slender strip of Mike's bed. I was like that image. I don't know. That speaks so much in just that one tiny little moment. It's like she is destroyed, right? And like that's how he sees her. And that's got to feed into his guilt. Even though in this moment he's feeling like elevated because he's dead and he's no longer around. But I don't know. So that whole dying sequence at the end, my first thought was like, why why is this here? I don't know. But it kind of reflects back on what I should have been understanding to be themes that were happening earlier on, which is really, it's so subtle. The story is so subtle. Yeah, because it's like, that's kind of what I was trying to get at with the idea that I can see why this gets picked up as a film because it's like plot yep. heavy and it like the theme is there if you won't have a director that really cares about it but otherwise it's like superhero movies all the themes are always the fucking same it's like redemption guilt like you don't even have to tell us what it is it'll be in there and it's so light that you could call it an action film because that's really why you're there in the theater to see the explosions I think when yeah. you go to see this film and the trailer is going to be like this is so fucked up how do they escape you know I mean, it, escape is in the title so like I imagine that's going to be how it's pitched like how do you escape oh you can only escape by dying you don't choose to die necessarily out of guilt or anything but like oh you're going to grapple with death you know and maybe George Saunders theme is more like you said he he wants to avoid killing someone at the end but it but it's like it's so light that Hollywood could do whatever the fuck they want with it you know and like when I'm reading it I'm just kind of like yeah it's there but I just really like these characters and like the attitude about it he's like well, I don't want to give it to that person and I don't want to give it to that one. No, like, I don't, I don't want to be part of this experiment. But he's not, like, so defiant that he's unable to, like, work with all of it. He, he seems like this character that's just kind of, like, plodding through the motions of these experiments, you know? So he's he's detached and he doesn't really care what the outcome is. You know pretty early on that, like, it's only his mother that he really cares about anymore. Like you said, we don't really get, like, his whole, like, motivations. But in hindsight, that's why he feels kind of like a removed observer in all of it. He's just kind of, like, not married to the outcomes because he knows like all this shit is you know manufactured at some level he's like i was madly in love twice today i vividly remember those feelings but i don't feel them now and he doesn't even feel sad about that he's just kind of like weird another day at spiderhead yeah one thing about the structure of this i noticed this on the second read yeah like i said there's no backstory like the backstory isn't introduced like in the beginning like what got him there right it only comes up when he's about to make the decision that backstory his understanding of himself because of that backstory is what drives his ultimate decision at the end so it kind of makes emotional sense for that to be when it comes up even though it's hinted at before like abnesty says i forget what he refers to it as your worst day ever or that bad day or whatever it was oh yeah 
Yeah. But the way that this like section one is him getting the verbal loose and experiencing a garden. So it's an introduction to like the setting. It's an introduction to the situation and the way the character is in the situation without mm-hmm. introducing the main problem that's going to arise. The next section, the immediately in section two is when the roller coaster starts. This is like the yeah. beginning of the experiment that starts the whole story and winds right. up with him at the end. But that first section is just kind of like a scene setting section, right? which is a different, this is a set up in a different way than that other structure from other stories that we mentioned in previous episodes, current situation, background, back to the current situation. We yeah. talked about that for snow. We talked about that for the Joe Hill story, uh, black phone. Yeah. And some other stories are like that. There's a lot of stories are like that. Yeah. Most, but this is so different and it's very interesting how different it is and how it works. Cause when you start the main story, you take some of the threads that were introduced in the first section and that scene setting section and start weaving them together. You need those to get into what's going to become the main story. But the scene, the first scene isn't important to that. Right. It's almost, um, I don't know that he would have planned this, but it's almost like the reveal at the end of why he is motivated to kill himself and this like deep-seated feeling of guilt that he has. Because that last line is like, like you said, he's he, there's like a page and a half left where he's like outside of his body, hovering yeah. above, and he's talking about joining a flock of birds. And it says, I joined them, flew among them. They did not recognize me as something apart from them. And I was happy, so happy, because for the first time in years and forevermore, I had not killed and never would. Yes, yes. So like, that's kind of like the we don't get the full backstory you know like we don't get the full i committed this crime this is why i'm here everybody hates me i've reconciled that and i've repented we don't get that everything he's enduring is a punishment we see we can see that but we don't know necessarily for what sure and we don't really know what his response to the punishment is other than he seems very like distant like i said from like unattached to the outcomes yeah the beginning scene is where he says like jeff or whatever says like thanks for your help or he says like thanks for your help jeff he's like of course like only a million more years to go he knows he has no agency he knows he has no choice in the matter and he's got the best attitude he can which is like he still has some personality left but he's not even being difficult but anyway by the end there it's like we realize that this is part of the motivation of why he decided to kill himself he's like I'm not going to kill anyone else I didn't come here to do that they think I'm a bad guy anyway I wonder if there's like something to be said for this I mean because like one of the themes here I think is like how do we treat the people that we think are the worst people in society you know it's looking at that and then mm-hmm. here's a guy who is among the worst of society looking at others who are part of his class or whatever and trying to decide how to do a lot punishments to them it's almost like a commentary the fact that we don't get to understand him fully until the very end that we don't appreciate who these prisoners are we don't care about their backstory why would we get to know his i think we're supposed to kind of like read it that way i think we're supposed to kind of read it like what's this guy gonna do and then like i don't know I don't know if this is me like being empathetic or like not buying into like the way the story is presented but when the experimenter guy is like oh well she did really bad things like I didn't feel it differently either you know it wasn't a powerful piece of information I don't really know that for any reader it would be at least not in that moment because we don't hear their evil backstory until then we weren't told that they're terrible people we're told 
about how he had sex with them and they fell in love. That's our first introduction to them. And then we find out they did terrible things. And then he says like, well, they're still people. This is the same way we're introduced to him, the, the yeah. narrator. Right. So I wonder if there's like something strategic about how we don't know their backstory or their yeah. motivations or their reactions. That's good. Yeah. I wonder if like we're just supposed to read this as like, yeah, they're technically prisoners. That's why they have to go through these bullshit experiments, but they're not necessarily being punished. It's more just like we deem them usable the same way we decide like beagles are really good for testing makeup products on because they're docile. It's like this is your brunt in life. You know, like we've decided that you're ripe for this, whether or not you're deserving of it. Because there's even this rapport between the experimenter and the main character. He's not saying every day like, all right, time to do your duty. Like you're a piece of shit. Get in there. They have all these like uh, ways that they speak to each other that seem respectful. They seem to have that rapport. And then like I said, that's why I don't think at the end, I'm sure they're, you're supposed to wonder whether he was tricked, but I felt like the ending there where the guy left his remote kind of spoke to the bond of the trust that they had. And they kind of alluded to that. Like he didn't view him as a prisoner. And he, even, the experimenter even makes a comment, Absenti, is that his name? Like going into it the day, he's like, this is going to be a terrible day. This is going to be a terrible day. Uh, Absenti is how I mispronounced his name when I was referring to it earlier. What is Abnesti. it? Abnesti. <laughs> Whatever it is. Absenti, I think is like a Latin word. Yeah. It means not present. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Amnesty is like, this is going to be a shit day. And it's because he knows that if they administer this darkened flocks, like these people are going to be driven to suicide. So he has some level of appreciation for the horrific stuff that goes on at Spiderhead. And it even seemed half-assed that he tried to convince this guy to choose one way or the other by introducing their backgrounds. I I am curious how that'll be played up in the film. I'm sure they'll be like, these people are pieces of scum, but I wonder when you'll find that out. You know, I think one of the reasons I was confused about or that I had that problem I described earlier about not being sure if I should be guessing that this is like all a setup to get him to come to the point of killing himself was, first of all, I didn't know, like, why describe his death? Why describe his afterlife? Right. Unless there's a lesson in the death, which there was. But also the other thing was some of the, the ways in which the people behaved made me question whether or not they were influenced by drugs that weren't being presented to us. Just they had such strange behaviors sometimes, made such strange decisions. You're like, why would they do that? And is it just like, you could write it off as this is just the culture of the prison and they've acculturated themselves to it and that's what they do. Or they've been influenced by some other drugs to just be docile in a vague kind of general sense. But those answers weren't there. I can't, I wish I could remember the specific moments, but there were times when I was like, oh, why? Like, maybe this is what it is. Is I w- This made me think of the Stanford prison experiment where they got people to torture what they thought were other, like you get people to sit down and say, okay, now you're a prisoner and you have to, this other person on the other side of the wall is doing things. And anytime, if I tell you to administer a punishment, you have to d- turn this dial to, to zap him. He's going to administer right. elect- an electric shock. And they discovered that like most people did it. They did it to the point where you, they could hear somebody on their side of the wall screaming and crying crying and begging for help. And they would just keep turning it up when the, the experimenter told them, okay, zap him again, zap him again. So my thought when he sat him down and said, okay, you got to pick Heather right. or Rachel, who are you going right. to give this terrible torture to? I was like, it's a Stanford prison experiment. Like, right. what's he going to do? And then he, the fact that he had no human interest in either of them to distinguish between them two. Yeah. It's like, how is that possible that a person could be that detached from two people? Right. Where you don't just find one thing like, oh, I like her freckles, so I like her better. You know, that kind of thing or whatever it is, just something. It just felt 
so it just didn't feel quite human. So that's what made me start questioning things about it. Well, they said something like about how in the section that I read, they're like, oh, we must have really effectively brought you down to baseline, which I wonder yes. if baseline is like a natural human state that we rarely reach. You know what I mean? Like we all <laughs> have levels be. of anxiety, but like we rarely reach baseline. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's what's being portrayed here is the vague docility is baseline. It may be baseline is like you said, you know, he couldn't find one distinguishing feature that made him feel one way or the other maybe baseline is like the absence of bias you know like really truly looking at people as just like people or not people i mean if you can't distinguish two people then are they even human to you well he can distinguish them but he doesn't you know feel differently about either i guess i know that's the part that i just like how can you not have any like the emotional baseline is so removed from them if he discovers this kind of like universal feeling of human kinship and that that's it there's no individuation anyway that was the thing that just made me start questioning things yeah that part does feel like a commentary though to the overall point could be yeah like it's part of the major theme yeah so do you have a takeaway i'm sure i've said this before and it's not a good takeaway but like if you have a universal theme or whatever like we talked about in the last one like what is the universal truth for this one it's kind of like how do we treat the worst among us are they still human what whatever that's at least what i kind of came out of here with that's cool to explore but like i said hollywood is probably going to give this a very different treatment because it's so plot heavy you remember it for very different things and i've talked about this before couldn't tell you for which story but there's something about like like if you can make your universal theme palatable by making it like commercially sellable, <laughs> that's one way for you to like think about how to package your story. So if you have an idea that you're like, that sounds kind of boring. I don't know who would read it. And to be fair, a lot of people don't feel that way about their own stuff. But if you've ever gotten feedback where like people are like, eh, it's like, think about the most Hollywood treatment you could give it. Think about the most plot heavy thing that you could do. And like, does your theme fit there? Or is there a way to just like spruce it up? What currently is like specify it yeah so if george saunders was like i want to write about how we treat prisoners like first of all i doubt that that's what he wanted to do but let's say (laughs) that that's what he wanted to do (laughs) it just doesn't seem like him yeah that's right then maybe you would end up with a commercial story or well with a you know a story about prisoners it's like we've read a lot of stories about prisoners whatever it feels like a very like common setting because it's like oh what happens okay one route you could go is like to have a boring story but like he up the ante made it unique in Hollywood by saying like yeah they do experiments on people like obviously this is not the progression that he came up with but this is the progression you can come up with so if you have a story about like unrequited love congrats you're one of a billion so like how can you make yours memorable it doesn't have to be fantastical it doesn't have to be like yeah they're conducting experiments on prisoners but like how can you package the truth in a plot that you're, you're still having fun writing but part of you recognizes has broad appeal broad appeal this is the part where you have to sell out like it's like we remade things like romeo and juliet we remade them with fucking what's her name heath ledger's not real sister but it looks like him uh uh julia styles was she in a heath ledger film that was like was he a masked lover things i hate about you that was uh uh, oh Is it that one? Yeah, Julia Stiles and Heath Ledger were in 10 Things I Hate About You. And that is a Shakespeare, but it's not Roman and Juliet. That is Taming of the Shrew. It's a retelling of Taming of the Shrew. Okay, I think that's what I'm thinking of here. Yeah. So yeah, it's like all these fucking stupid remakes. Like nobody's going to watch Shakespeare play, but the plot is like pretty universal. So why don't we make hot teens do it? (laughs) (laughs) You know, 
Like that could be a solution to a lot of stories is what if we made hot teens do it? You know, this is what the idea of taking a universal theme and making it specifically like weaving it as, as like the motivation of your plot. That's like kind of building off what we were talking about in the last episode. This is how you wring as much as you can out of your theme. Yeah. As you make all the aspects of that, you like embody them within characters and situations and dilemmas and everything that happens within the plot, the way the plot unfolds is an expression of the, idea that you're kind of exploring yeah that's great and and what you said about to make it mainstream is like you make it more plot heavy so you make the plot elements like that you make it more um like action or you just you just put it in a cool setting that could be put on screen or whatever you know that's good then you're doing literature but you're also doing something that people are going to enjoy reading yeah it's kind of like even if your end goal is not to think about like oh i want this to be made into a film but like if you want to like a book deal My takeaway, I think, because this is what I marked up within the uh, the text, were those just little uses of language, like the what I said about using re yeah. like for regarding and uh, inserting the French, yeah. the French word après, and then uh, using the word like, my mind was like reeling as part of the narration. And then the way that in that first section, when he's under the influence of the verbalus, just the, the elevation of his diction, I just thought that thinking about language in such a specific kind of nuanced way. I really like the way that he did it in this. That was what I was marking up as I read it. So I guess that's my takeaway. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, like there's ways that you can like intentionally spice up the way your characters talk. And I made a note, and I'm sure you thought the same when they first introduced Verbalus. I wrote need <laughs> because like, I'm like, dude, like Adderall's one thing, right? I've considered starting an addiction there, but like Verbalus, like Sign me the fuck For up. writers? <laughs> yeah, sign me the fuck up. One problem with the verbalus as it's depicted is it wasn't uh, one of the girls was in the control room and oh, um, yeah. it said she was became very literal minded. It's like, put a sock in it. And she's looking around for a sock. Yeah, like the clip out is is rough. Yeah. (laughs) It's like being hung over. Worth it. But yeah, like, uh, anyway, back to your takeaway. Like, if you can inject some verbalus into your own characters, they don't have to be uh, poetic. But you can think to yourself, like, every time you write dialogue for those characters, how would they talk? Would they slip into this? Would they slip into that? This is one thing. Like, when I see the word re, what is this? Like, is this something that somebody is saying to me? Is this something that somebody has written for? me right thinking of the occasion of narration is is an interesting thing to think about but if i were writing something i would not use re yeah if i were speaking i don't think i would use it but i know people do use it in speech because it's so ubiquitous you know we do see an email all the time and i i've seen it like in a like you can put in a text message i just use the word the letter w for with in a text message but i wouldn't do that talking i wouldn't say w i'd just say with right? right so that kind of thing is like what is the the text that you're creating is it someone talking is it someone thinking is it someone like how how is the narration happening that's the kind of thing that could guide you in the way in which you employ language uh-huh. this is a very specific thing where his diction goes from low to high and he starts talking about plato and using words that he wouldn't use anywhere else in the text when he's on the verbal loose but right. i don't know do you think people will get purple if they uh, use that too much for their own writing <laughs> 
I'm also willing to risk that. <laughs> like, I mean, name a side effect. Bloody stools, death. I'm game for all of it, dude. Just to get the words out. <laughs> <laughs> just to get the words out and get that book deal. I just need one and then I'll quit. <laughs> just one, just one, I'll quit. Yeah. I swear, I swear I'll quit. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to get straight. We're going to get clean. All right. Thanks, guys. All right. Thanks, guys. If you enjoyed this episode, consider joining our Patreon. Your support helps us keep the show running. Find out more at patreon.com slash podcast. And for industry news, writing tips, and great short fiction, join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Naples Writers Workshop. You can also subscribe to our monthly newsletter at napleswritersworkshop.com.